0: We hear such from one another. We hear such from the Word. And we turn this morning again to the Word of God to hear of His goodness and faithfulness. And sometimes His goodness and faithfulness is in telling us where we go wrong. That it is good to tell us where we go wrong. It is faithful to tell us all that we need to know. And so I've been preaching through our, the New Testament letter of the Romans. And last week we did an overview of a very large portion of text. And last week I compared that to surveying the buffet table. A big old buffet table, taking a quick walk through, scanning it all, but then going back and slowly selecting what you want to put on your plate. And so we, we've now scanned the table, and over the next couple months, we are going to slowly take each item on the table and chew on that portion of God's Word more intently. And so today, we are looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. And this passage of Romans deals particularly with the foolishness of unbelief. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. That to be foolish is to deny or live as if there is no God. And that is exactly what Paul deals with in our text today. So I'd encourage you, if you'd like to use The bulletin or your own Bibles, the pew Bible, a device. Open up the Word of God with me this morning as we turn to Romans 1, starting in verse 18. Let us hear the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are a God who speaks and makes Yourself known. We pray today that You would make Yourself known through these Scriptures. I ask, O Lord, that You would use me in spite of my sin and my weaknesses to faithfully and clearly proclaim Your Word. And Spirit, go forth in the power of Your Word and accomplish what You purpose with it. May it not return empty, but may it do what You want it to do. And give us ears to hear. Open our hearts and minds, O God. May we hear Your Word as Your Word and so receive and believe it and live glorifying You. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're kind of, we're thinking about this idea of unbelief. And the big idea I want you to hear today is that unbelief is a sin. Unbelief is a sin that deserves God's wrath. That's what we see in our text today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to understand why it is that unbelief is a sin. And then we're going to see how Paul gives us reasons for why unbelief is a sin. And then we're going to consider what unbelief looks like in the world today. So as we come to our passage this morning, we need to take kind of the overarching buffet point and separate that a little from the narrower point we're looking at today. Verse 18 gives us that broader point that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So all the unrighteousness, that was the whole buffet table last week, the meat, the salad, the fruit, the dessert, the other stuff, all the pasta salads and things, all the different varieties and flavors of sin, God's wrath is coming at all of them. But today, the focus that we are looking at is this narrower dish of unbelief. The specific unrighteousness and ungodliness that God reveals his wrath against is that of Unbelief. Here's how verse 18 continues. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So the sin here is a suppression of truth that sinful men and women do by their sin. That we are suppressing truth truth. Well, what truth is that exactly? Look ahead at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. The truth being suppressed, the truth being denied, is that God exists and ought to be treated like God. And that truth is denied not just mentally, but by our actions, by our unrighteousness. That we deny God's authority to determine right and wrong by going our own way and choosing for ourselves what we want to be right and wrong. And so God's wrath against sin includes the sin of unbelief. That's what Paul is saying. That people who deny God's existence and His godness through their thoughts and actions, are sinning against God. That unbelief is a sin. Now, I listened to a sermon this week from another pastor on our New Testament reading from 1 John 5, and I think it really helps us to understand why unbelief is such a sin. First John 5.10 said this, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Unbelief makes God a liar. Unbelief is a sin because it rejects the truth God has revealed. It repudiates God's revelation. Unbelief is not some neutral thing like saying, I don't watch football. That's a neutral thing. Not watching football doesn't mean you dislike football. It doesn't mean you think people are wrong if they watch football. It's just, I choose not to watch football. Now, I, I do choose, but yeah, hypothetically. I choose not to watch football. Unbelief is not like that. I choose not to believe in God. It is not like I choose not to watch football. Unbelief is rejecting something. It is saying to God, I don't believe you. That you are are not trustworthy. John Stott, a pastor from England, writes about it in this way. He says, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the Word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to Him. Now, I don't think any of us would probably put it that strongly. But think about it. Unbelief is a sin to be deplored. That does not mean we deplore unbelievers themselves, but we recognize that unbelief is a sin. And we seek to care for those in that sin by sharing with them the good news that Paul proclaimed verses earlier that they might be saved from God's wrath against their unbelief and come to believe and so be saved in Jesus. And so Paul is writing, unbelief is a sin deserving God's wrath. And then he supports that point with two reasons. Think about this in terms of a a courtroom. So the first thing that Paul does is he silences the defense. And then the second thing he does is he prosecutes his point. So first he silences the defense. Whatever the defense is saying that unbelief is not that big of a deal, he he takes that out and then he begins providing evidence to support the guilt of unbelief. So that defense, let's start there. The, The common defense against unbelief being a sin is that people don't know any better. How are unbelievers supposed to know that God exists? How are they supposed to know that they will be judged for failing to believe in Him. Paul, they just don't know any better. Well, Paul says they do know better. They just suppress the knowledge of God's clearly revealed truth. That's what he says in verse 19. He says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. He's saying some things can be known about God. They are plain to see about God's existence. Now, you you might be like, I've never seen God. God's invisible, right? So how is it plain to see? Where is this plain evidence for God? Well, he continues in verse 20. For his, that is God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived... Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. A lot of good stuff in that verse there. Notice, God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. What is unseeable is seen. It's like a paradox there that God has revealed himself. And how has He done it? In creation. And they're called things that have been made. Nature didn't just happen. The earth did not self-create itself. God made these things, and as their Creator, His attributes, what He is like, shines forth from creation. Think about art. Art. Maybe you like art. Maybe you think art is dumb. I don't know. But think about paintings. Imagine you're walking around at a museum. You know, you've got museum face and walk going on. And you're looking at paintings. As you walk through a museum and you see a painting, you instinctively know this has not always existed. Someone made this painting. Someone took a blank canvas and put that art on it. An artist created it. It is a work of art. And you can learn about an artist by their painting, how they use colors, what they put in the foreground, the background, what subjects do they paint. How weird is it? You learn about them. And in a much greater way, creation itself is God's work of art. And all people instinctively know that the things around us were made by some being powerful enough to have made them. This is not knowledge you have to go to school to figure out. It is not some treasure you have to unearth on an archaeological dig. Paul says that all people know this. It is clearly perceived. It is not just knowledge that is out there that you could get. It's knowledge we have. R.C. Sproul writes this, The problem with man is not so much a lack of knowledge of God as it is a refusal to acknowledge God. That we clearly perceive that the world is the divine handiwork of a mighty God. We just suppress that truth. Okay, but another common objection then is, well, what about people who see that some God must exist but are just worshiping the wrong God? What about people who have never heard of the Bible and yet strive to worship whatever Creator is out there as they perceive Him in creation? That's a very good question. But there's an assumption in that question. And that assumption is that God has failed to clearly communicate what He is like. It is assumed that there is not enough knowledge out there to know God. Now, to be fair, there is not enough knowledge to know that you need to believe in Jesus and that He lived, He died on a cross and rose again. Yeah, that knowledge isn't in creation. But there is knowledge of God in creation. And by saying that some people just can't figure it out, we're saying God is at fault. When in fact, over and over again, the Scriptures tell us it's we who are at fault. It says in verse 21, so they are without excuse. And so yes, some people may not suppress all the knowledge of God, but all people suppress some knowledge of God. That everyone rejects some of God's revelation and thus they are sinning in their unbelief. And so in this way, Paul has shown the defense. He has silenced this defense that people don't know any better. And he's saying, no, people do know better and they are without excuse. And so having silenced the defense, he proceeds to prosecute his point. And he's saying, do you want proof that unbelief is a sin? Look at its fruit what happens in the lives of unbelievers. He writes, "...all people will replace the truth with futile, foolish falsehoods." So unbelief is not just the absence of belief. It is the replacement of belief in God with some other false belief that leads to bad fruit. And Paul says this rejection leads to two disastrous fruits or results. And we see those fruits in the phrase, they became. You can find that phrase in verse 21 and verse 22. It says, they became. The first one says this, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. that doesn't sound good. You don't want to be futile in your thinking. You don't want your foolish hearts darkened. But what does that mean? Well, futile thinking is like thinking back to school. I know some of you kids just started school again. And imagine you've got one of those math problems without a calculator. And you've got lots of steps. Maybe it's algebra, long division, one of those nasty math problems. Futile thinking is when you get the first step wrong. No matter how many other steps after that you get right, your first wrong step means the final answer is going to be wrong. That's the same thing with futile thinking. When we deny God's existence, all of our thinking suffers from that one major error. Now, this does not mean all unbelievers are dumb. On the contrary, many professed atheists are very bright. But their intelligence can often be wasted when they proceed from unbelief. Because that erroneous starting point means a lot of what follows is futile. And when you are thinking in that way, your hearts become darkened. That word heart in our culture exclusively refers to our feelings, our desires, that our heart is our emotional center. But that's not how the Bible uses the word heart. In the Bible, your heart is your moral decision maker. And if we believe we live in a world without a moral and righteous God who determines right and wrong, then our moral decisions will be increasingly clouded and directionless. We will be morally wandering around in the darkness, guided by whoever is near us or wherever we feel like we need to go, unaware of the danger that awaits us in the darkness. So he's saying one of this nasty fruits of unbelief is futile thinking, which leads to a darkened heart. It changes who we are. And then he gives us a second disastrous result. That's a a very personal kind of what happens in our lives. And then verses 22 to 23, we see that phrase, they became again. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's an arrogance that comes with unbelief. We claim to be wise that once God is out of the picture, who on earth can best fill His shoes? This guy right here. We can. We're not going to take orders from our dog, hopefully. like It's going to be us. We're going to be in charge. And we think we know best. But the foolishness of that thinking is revealed in our temptation to idolatry. You see, humans were created to worship God. We were created to make God the most important thing in our life. The thing we feared most and the thing we sought happiness and purpose from. But if we choose not to worship God, we don't simply cease to worship. We end up worshiping other things. We exchange God for some other object of worship. That's what the Bible calls an idol. And no matter how good of a thing that idol is, it's not God. It is nothing compared to the glory of the immortal God. Think about that Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 2. The prophet says, God is offering you a fountain of living waters. He promises to be all you could ever want or need. And we're like, nah. I'm going to just work on my own cistern over here. Who needs a fountain that is continually producing water? I'll just collect it on my own. But our cistern's broken. It's got holes leaking out of it. Who knows what kind of mildew and yuck is in there. It can't be God, these idols, because they're not God. And so it doesn't matter what you make of your idol. Your idol might be money and profits. It might be sex and pleasure. It might be relationships and family, power and influence. Maybe you are your own idol and your own independence. If we try to replace God with any of those things, we are foolishly setting ourselves up for failure. We reveal the fruits of unbelief is not absence of belief. It is false belief. Unbelief never leads to an absence of worship. It is just wrong worship. So as we look at this scripture, what I want us to see is that unbelief is not a neutral thing. Paul says it is a sin that leads to moral instability and foolish idolatry. So what does that look like today? What does unbelief look like in our world today? I want us to think about two broad categories of unbelief. There's professed unbelief, professed unbelief, and then practiced unbelief. Professed unbelief is most clearly seen in what we would call atheism. That plenty in our world today would deny God exists. They suppress His revealed truth and they boldly assert that there is no God. And even if there was a God, I wouldn't want to follow that God. And God says that that unbelief is sinful. He tells us that unbelief is subject to His wrath. In fact, even now, God is revealing His wrath against that unbelief by letting people go into futile thinking, darkened hearts, and foolish idolatry. He lets them go where they want to go. But professed atheism, professed unbelief is not always that clear. We can see it in smaller ways, ways perhaps closer to home in our community. You might know people who don't outright reject God, and yet they fit verse 21 perfectly. They know of God, and yet they reject honoring God as God. One common example I've heard through the years is, well, I don't need to go to church and worship God. I spend my time with God in nature. Now, as Paul would tell you, you can know of God from nature. But you know what else the Bible says? You need the Bible you need more than what nature can teach you. The Bible commands us to gather for worship with God. And by saying we only need time with God in nature, we call God a liar, saying I don't need what you tell me I need. I think you're lying to me, God. Now this person would never call themselves an atheist, but they would profess a rejection of of God. Though they call themselves a believer, they admit their unbelief. And that's a sin. We must call such people to repentance, challenging them to see how they're casually discarding God's truth and making Him a liar. Other subtle examples of this kind of professed unbelief are people who say, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I could never believe that God would send people to hell. That's what God says here. He has wrath. So you don't believe in this God. I I believe in some things about God, but I think He's lying about other things. Or I believe in God, but I think he, He wants us to love whoever we want to love, however we want to do that. Again, that's professing a belief that is directly contrary to the Word of God. Though they know of God, they reject letting Him be God. And so that's a kind of professed unbelief. But there's another kind of unbelief or atheism. And it's for those of us who follow Jesus. Because we struggle with the same kinds of things. Now there's a difference here. See, professed atheism is when you state your unbelief as a settled position that you agree with. But for most of us, we do stuff that we know is wrong. And we realize it's wrong. And yet we still kind of stupidly do it. Maybe you've done that. Hopefully I'm not the only one who's ever felt that way before. Tim Keller writes this, that every sin is a kind of practical atheism. It is acting as if God were not there. So in this way, even believers can live with an attitude of unbelief which suppresses God's truth and leads us into futile thinking darkened hearts, and foolish idolatry. We see that in our lives, don't we? We see futile thinking when we try to rationalize or explain that our sins are not hurting anyone. Or, they did that first, so I'm justified to do this. That's all futile thinking that ignores God. It disbelieves God in that moment of sin. Or maybe it's our hearts that are darkened and going the wrong way because our hearts really want that. Or I feel really strongly. Or I'm doing this out of great passion or out of great anger. Our hearts go astray. Or maybe we make foolish idols of created things. That I must have this. I need this. Whether it's a a new job, a promotion at work, whether it is some other thing the world tells me will make me happy and satisfy me. And we make foolish idols of things that are really just broken cisterns. And so we can all be guilty of this attitude of unbelief, this practical atheism. But the good news in a bad news passage like this is that we are not saved by how well we believe. We are not graded in heaven on are you a good believer or a bad believer? We are saved by the one in whom we believe. We are not saved by how well we believe, but by the one in whom we believe. And in Mark 9, we read a man cry out to Jesus saying, I believe! Help my unbelief! May that be our cry. That we do believe in Jesus, but we also acknowledge, you know what, my belief isn't always, uh, isn't always great. I slip into practical unbelief quite often, God. There are times in my life where I do not honor you as I should, and I am sorry. Help me with that. And the good news is that we have a God who is good and faithful, as Beverly sang about. A God who is merciful and in Christ shows us His mercy. And when we know the mercy of God, we can join in all nature in testifying to the truth about God to those who do not believe in Him, that they too might believe in Him and have life in the Son as we do. Let us pray. Oh God, we pray that You would help us to see the areas in which we struggle with unbelief. For some of us, God, that may be moments of practical atheism, where we forget about you or we deny and suppress you even though we know better. For others of us, it may be that we've never believed, that we have never worshipped you, we've never wanted to worship you. God, break down these sinful walls and help us. Have mercy on us in Christ. Help our unbelief, O God. Seal in us your word and work in us this week by your Spirit that we might grow closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.